good evening everyone welcome back to church at 5 after your summer small summer break um before we are uh as before we hear the sermon for today by pastor brandon i would like to read the scripture portion for today uh you can open your bibles or you can look at the screen behind me let's open our bibles to book of matthew chapter 5 verse 1 2 and 3 matthew chapter 5 verse 1 2 and 3 now when he saw the crowds he went up on a mountain side and sat down his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven all right yeah well let me also say from my side welcome back it's uh, great to be back uh, i know some of you look like maybe you might be new here uh so then just welcome and uh yeah i hope you'd all had a good uh, restful or productive or whatever you were aiming for summer break and i'm excited about what lies ahead i'm excited about what god has in store for us here in this service coming into this next season it's always uh, feels like an exciting time after summer headed towards advent and uh i want to just share my heart before we get into the message for today uh that when i I've, i've been thinking about this a lot over the summer and when i'm thinking about church at 5 and i'm thinking about a need that things that we really need to be focusing on and what we need to be thinking about uh i see a clear need in the church today uh and this is going to be something that we're going to be emphasizing and focusing on into this next season and that is community that we need community we need to grow together we need to know each other and support one another And so we need to be working on community. Amen. <laughs> so if you're not in a small group, or maybe you're new here, uh we have small groups and if this is a place that you feel comfortable to come to on a regular basis, a place that you would call a home, I really want to challenge you to get into a small group. And if you've come coming for a while and you're not whatever was holding you back before, I encourage you to take that step. and take this next season as a way of saying oh, I want to grow deeper. I want to get to know the people I'm serving with, the people that I'm in ministry with, the people that I'm growing with and coming into a small group. And so it's my hope, it's my vision uh ultimately that everybody who comes to church at 5, actually everybody that comes to any of the services in Calvary Chapel would be in a small group, would be involved in a small group. It's so important for our growth as a church and growth as individuals and in our community. So that's my plea to you uh to join a small group. We have a quite we have four small groups right now and a few more that might be hopefully starting uh in this next season and so uh it's a great time. We have small groups, there is room. So if you ever felt like oh there's no room, it's not a good excuse anymore. We have room. Now with that uh we're heading into a new season. We're also going to be beginning a new series from the mount uh and over the next few months maybe quite a few months we'll see <laughs> haven't planned out all the way to the end but uh there's a lot in this we're going to be going through what is all uh, commonly referred to as the sermon on the mount although it's not actually called that in the original text i think it was augustine who first kind of mentioned it being like as the sermon on the mount 
Uh, and in that time, we're probably going to take a break for Advent and stuff, so we'll, we'll kind of be going in and out. But we really want to take some time and get in deep with the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot there. Many of you will probably at least be familiar with it. Uh, even people who have never been in church, who aren't believers, usually have some kind of reference or have heard of it in some way or another. Uh, but if you didn't know, it's found in Matthew 5, all the way to the end of chapter 7. Um, but there's a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstandings, a lot of controversy around this sermon. Uh, I found a lot of controversy I didn't even know existed as I was doing a lot of study uh, preparing for this series. And uh, we're going to get into some of that as we go through it. Uh, but I, I really want to kind of keep this bigger picture focus. And if you have read it, and when I, mean, when I say read it, I don't mean like skimmed through it, but really read it. And I would encourage you to do so if you haven't, and if you have, to do it again uh, as we're going through this series. If you've really read it, you're going to quickly see that there's some incredibly challenging commands in the Sermon on the Mount. It is not an easy sermon. Commands given to us by Jesus. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about the sermon and uh, taking a bit of a step back kind of getting an idea of what we're going to be getting into, uh, not missing the wood for the trees, as they say. And uh, um, to be clear, a full overview of the entire text is a little too ambitious for me to do in one sermon. That's not going to be the goal here. We're not going to go through every single part or look at how it's broken down. We'll do that as we go through it, and maybe in the following few weeks we'll be, do that a bit more. Uh, well, we won't go into tremendous detail today. Uh, especially because that's our plan going through. As we go through it, we want to go slowly and we want to absorb all that this entire text has to teach us from beginning to end. All that it has to tell us about what it means to be a Christian and what the Christian walk with the Lord looks like. What we should look like. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is going to be doing for us. In the next few weeks, we're going to go through the Beatitudes, which is this kind of beginning part, you know, blessed are those who fill in the blank. There's quite a few, depending on who you ask, seven, eight, or nine. Another interesting controversy I didn't know existed. So we're going to be going through those first, and today I want to give you some idea of how we're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount how we're going to read it, how we're going to study it, what is going to be our approach, and we're going to be ending with this first beatitude in verse 3. And I believe we're going to... uh, by Matthew as a condensed version of what was most likely a longer sermon. I mean, if you actually read through it pretty quick, it'd be like 13 minutes. We could do that today. Everyone's like, yes, amen. Let's get out of here. I'm hungry. I'm going to go a little bit longer than that, I'm afraid. So to be clear, though, This was not some loose, offhand recollection of Jesus' words. Like, I think he said something about, you know, not judging others. or It's not like it's some kind of loose recollection. Every word of it sits in the canon of Scripture, and it is the Word of God. And that's how we read it today, from beginning to end. And as we'll see, there's a purpose in how it unfolds. There's a purpose in why it's put together the way it is, why it goes in the order that it does. But we won't get into too much of that today. I tried to, actually, that was my original plan, to do like an overview and show you that, that flow, but uh, there's just, it's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. It's a, long, it's a long sermon. So I didn't think that was the wisest thing to do today. 
when we look at this sermon as a whole, though, we do take a step back. It's incredibly, there's some incredibly important applications for us as believers. And we want to keep that in mind as we go through it, too, from beginning to end. This is, in a way, a type of manifesto, as close as we could get to a manifesto of Jesus. And what I mean by that is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is making this kind of declaration. He's showing his aim for who he expected his followers to be, who he expected his followers to be, and what he expected them to do. And that's the transition we see with the Beatitudes. Be something that you need to be. You need to be those things in order to do the things that the rest of the sermon says. So we see this expression of who we're called to be followed by what we're called to do. And then it kind of ends with a, a depiction of how that can look with different examples of paths, two paths, two trees, two houses being built. But it's important to notice that it's also not a rule book. You don't want this to be your religion. The Sermon on the Mount is not the gospel in itself. It is not the gospel. You don't want to say, if I just live that way, if I do everything that the Sermon on the Mount says, then I'll be a good person. It's not a rule book, but a description. It's a description of what disciples will look like. You know, we have to keep that in mind. It's important to emphasize that it doesn't go the other way. It's not do these things and then you're a disciple. It's follow Christ, be a disciple, and then you will begin to do these things. And we can't get the two mixed or we'll fall into legalism. It begins with when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, this is what's very typical uh, type of teaching as a teacher would sit down. The disciples would gather around. This wasn't uh, unique to Jesus. Uh, many leaders and spiritual leaders and teachers would, do, would go up onto a hill and sit down and teach their disciples. But I want to notice here that Jesus pulled away from the crowd. Jesus pulled away from the crowd, and that's important for us today to keep in mind. For those of us who are disciples, who are followers of Christ, he pulled away from the crowd. Now, what was the crowd? The crowd, they followed him because of his signs and his wonders and his miracles, and, but they were very fickle. They followed him and believed him one minute, and then not that long later, they're the ones yelling, crucify him as he's nailed to a cross. But his disciples, but his disciples followed him because of the truth he spoke. They followed him because of the truth he spoke. Peter says, where else would we go? You offer the words of life. They followed him because of the truth he spoke. The words of the Sermon on the Mount are for his disciples. It's for his disciples. And that means his disciples that were gathered there on that day as he sat down and taught them. And for us as his disciples 2,000 years later. It's for his disciples. Disciples are to be different. We live different. We think different. And we act different. We're not like the crowd. We're not like the masses. We're not like the world. And we follow Jesus because of our faith that he is who he says he is, that the word of God is true. The account about Jesus is true. It's real. It's authentic. And it transforms our life. I believe that he is who he says he is. And we have an assurance in the things that we hope for. We have a hope in Christ. We have a hope for our future, a hope for our eternity. 
And we have an assurance in our hope, and we have a confidence in the things that we have not seen. Even though I have never seen Jesus Christ physically with my eyes face to face, I know he is who he says he is, not in some blind faith or some loose idea of hope, but an assurance and a confidence in this truth that he is who he says he is. This is what a disciple is. A disciple believes that Jesus is who he says he is. A disciple is a believer And the words of the sermon are for us. Now, of course, there are hints of the gospel in the sermon, uh, which I will continually draw us back to because I believe that the gospel needs to be in our ears as often as we will listen. So for those of you who are not disciples here today, maybe watching online, you're not a believer, not a follower of Jesus. This sermon is going to challenge you to make some choices about what you believe. It's either going to draw you to cling to Jesus, saying, I, I, see there's a, I see there's a morality that I want to seek that I know I can't do in my own. I need him, and I see him not just as a man anymore, but as a savior. Or the Sermon on the Mount is going to repulse you. As I read in my study somewhere, sorry, I don't remember where, save us from the Sermon on the Mount. And this was referencing un, non, uh, non-believers, so people outside of the church. It was actually in a university, if I remember where I read it. Um, and they were asked to read the Sermon on the Mount, having never read it before. And the conclusion was, save us from the Sermon on the Mount. How could anyone ever hope to attain this standard? And the truth is, of course, we can't. We can't, not by our strength. The Sermon on the Mount depicts disciples of Christian counterculture. Christian counterculture. And this idea of counterculture, it's been around for quite a while. Usually referring to these, you know, the younger generation, this is going back in like the 60s, the younger generation who feel isolated from the world around them. They want to rebel against the status quo. They want to go against what the culture says is the norm. And this is true, I think, for many today, many young people, but I think of all ages. And the truth is, people, people, all people are looking for something different. We are looking for something different, something authentic, something genuine, a genuine expression and a reality of love, a reality, a truth of joy, of peace. The problem is, the one place that this should be found, the church, is often found to be seeking to conform to the culture rather than to be a counterculture. So many churches today look to look just like the world. And as a church today, nothing should penetrate and hurt more than to hear people say, there's nothing different about you. You're not different than anyone else. You're not different than anyone else in the world. We shouldn't look like the world as a church or individually as his disciples. We shouldn't look like the world. As the people of God, we are called to be set apart, to live a holy life, which is to say, to live a life that is different from the world around us. This is then seen in how we live, how we behave, how we react, even how we perceive and see the world around us. 
We can remember God's command as he rescued his people out of Egypt and slavery, telling them they're not to be like the Egyptians. That's where you came from. You don't need to be like them. And he also said, don't be like the people of the land of Canaan, where they were headed. They were to be set apart, not conforming to anything that they knew before or anything they know now or anything that they would know in the future when it comes to the world around them. They were to be set apart because he is their God and he is our God today. We do not set our standards about what we do, how we live, by what the world says we should be or what the world says we should do. We look to the Lord. We look to the word of God. And all this sets the background for the Sermon on the Mount. We have to kind of grab a hold of this before we can get into the nitty-gritty, getting into the actual uh, context of these specifics within the sermon. We are called to be different, to be different, to act different, when brought under his grace and his mercy and through our obedience to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. To be different. In this series, we're going to be looking at a foundation for our identity as believers. Jesus flips the cultural understanding of morality upside down. He takes it to the extreme. This is, again, probably the most well-known sermon ever put to paper in human history, yet it is commonly misunderstood as simply to be a sermon about morality Instruction on how we should just live a good life with one another. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't judge. Learning to pray, how to forgive. It all sounds quite nice from a distance and a bit out of context. But when we read it, really read it, we can ask ourselves, is this how I think? Is this how I see things? Is this how I live I can tell you the truth, as I read through it, I find myself accused. The reality is, it sets an impossible standard. It says we should be more righteous than the Pharisees. We should be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's a pretty high standard. Let's take a quick look at a few examples. I love these statements, the you have heard but I tell you statements, if you know familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know what I'm talking about. Jesus says things like, you have heard, don't cheat on your spouse. We could all say, yeah, I agree, that's, that's a good standard of morality. But then Jesus continues, but I tell you, if you even have one lustful thought, if you even think a lustful thought about another person, another man, another woman, you've already cheated on your spouse. Whew. That's a different standard. You have heard, do not murder. Yeah, murder's wrong. I agree. But I tell you, if you hate someone, if you have anger in your heart towards them, you're already guilty of this. It's hard to wrap our brain around this. We'll be getting into that stuff later, I promise, when we get to that section of the text. The sermon sets such a high standard. Do not be anxious, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Do you live without anxiety? Do you live without anxiety? Do you trust in the Lord so fully that you don't have doubts and fears about tomorrow? It's a high standard. Do you pray? And not just pray, but do you pray with the right motives, with the right heart? 
not to be seen, but that only you and the Lord would be together. Are you generous? Never holding tightly to your possessions, but storing up treasure for yourself in heaven. These are just some examples. Again, we'll get to these things when we get to them. Sermon on the Mount flips the idea of morality upside down and creates a standard that is impossible to achieve. It, it's, not, it's not a religion that anybody could live by. You cannot live by the religion of the Sermon on the Mount. You will fail. It's not the gospel in itself. It will point us to the gospel, as we'll see. Before we can look at all of these individual traits in the sermon and ask what exactly do they mean for my life, what, okay, what does that mean for my life? There's a lot of that. Probably you're thinking, mm, a few of those already, I'm wondering. But we need to take this bird's eye view of the sermon, and as we do, we see an image of something. We see an image of fruit. And at the end, he's going to use these images of, of two paths to be taken. Two trees, a good tree and a bad tree. One producing good fruit, one bad. Two houses, one built on sand, the other on a rock. Two types of people. The sermon is not meant to be an exact law for us to live by, but rather an expression of what the life of a true disciple of Christ will look like. And this is countered by an image of a false disciple. It's a question of what seed is growing within us. What seed is growing within us? See, murder is wrong. Of course. Everybody would say, yeah, okay, I agree. It's wrong to take another's life. But do you understand that murder is simply the fruit of a seed of hatred? Planted in the heart and allowed to grow. That's why Jesus puts them as the same. You don't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to kill somebody. You don't just walk down the street, okay, maybe like psychopaths, but within reason, <laughs> it doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's something that grows and develops over time. A seed of lust produces the fruit of marital infidelity. For the most part, people don't just wake up one day and think, I'm going to cheat on my spouse today. They allow thoughts to creep in and to grow, and they meditate on them day after day, week after week, until it grows into something more. So if seeds of hatred, of lust, of doubt are allowed to grow, don't be surprised that they produce adultery, anxiety, even murder. And this feels extreme, I know. Because we want to think that we're really not that bad. Sure, we have occasional bad thoughts, but it's just a thought. It's just a matter of time. Is the truth. It's just a matter of time, of circumstances, and consequences, right? If you removed consequences and created the right circumstances, we are capable of seeing those seeds of sin in our thoughts turn into sinful actions. That's the truth. Some of you are already to that point with some things. Maybe it's lust. You think, you know what? 
if there was no consequences, I don't know. I don't know if I would, what decisions I would make. These sinful thoughts can turn into sinful actions, even the most heinous and wicked of sins. And the truth is, we're born into sin. And we are all capable of worse things than we really think, than we really can imagine. We all have a handful of seeds that will only produce a wicked crop. We're born into that. Seeds of pride, of selfishness, of lust, of jealousy, of envy, of hatred. We felt all of those. And unkept, they can grow into something much, much worse. And Jesus is saying, there's really no difference. If we will, if we will say it's okay to have a lustful thought, it's okay to have a hateful thought, to have a selfish thought, to be filled with pride, if that's okay, then you're no different than seeing those things come to full fruition. So even with all of our strength and willpower, no, we really have no hope in ourselves. This is why the sermon begins with this first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We must become empty. We must become poor, meaning to be emptied out, to have nothing in ourselves of any value for our salvation. This is self-abandonment. Spiritual bankruptcy. This is essential for everything that comes afterward. Everything that comes after must begin here. This talks of our emptying of ourselves because we cannot hope to be filled with anything. We cannot hope to live out of a fullness if we are not first emptied. We have to be emptied first because there are seeds of grace given to us by the gospel of Jesus Christ that when planted deep within our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit produces a new reality, a new understanding. We become completely new creatures in Christ. Everything that was is gone and something completely new grows in its place. Something new grows within its place. I hope for all of us to come to a deeper sense of this reality as disciples of Christ, but it begins by first emptying ourselves. In fact, we cannot be disciples. We cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. We cannot belong to Christ without first emptying ourselves. This is the opposite of what the world tells us and what many Christian leaders even declare today, that the key to living right, to happiness, to success is simply to believe in yourself. And we add these values to traits like self-confidence and self-reliance and self-assurance as, as something to be coveted, something to desire. But I tell you, my confidence is not in myself, not in my abilities, and not in my strengths. As Paul put it, my righteousness and my attempts to be good, my attempts to do the right thing, it's as filthy rags. And until we realize this to be true, by the work of the Holy Spirit, 
and the authority of the Word of God changing our heart, we may find ourselves growing the wrong crop. Before we embark on this mountain of a sermon, it's not just the Sermon on the Mount, it is a mountain of a sermon, the only way that we could ever hope to climb it in order to see ourselves living by the principles that it declares and calls us to is to first realize that we cannot do it. Not in and of ourselves. We have to first realize that we cannot do it. As we see what kind of tree we are by our fruit, we become aware of, whatever, of whether or not our heart has been changed. Not in what we do, but in the changing of our character. It is our spiritual bankruptcy, our total depravity that we must be founded on. This is our foundation. It's not about what we can do or what we doing the right things. It's not grace plus going to church plus spiritual gifts plus great ministry. It is Christ alone. This is what it means to be saved by grace. So how do we become poor in spirit? How do we become poorer in spirit? How do we live this out? How do we empty ourselves? We look to Jesus. That's not just an easy, spiritual, churchy answer. It's the truth. We look to Jesus. As the disciples looked to Jesus, when he would be performing miracles and doing these great things, they would say, increase our faith. And when they said that, they said it in a sense of, of realizing how, how much they still needed to grow because there were moments where they felt probably pretty good in themselves, right? Having seen God do work through them, right? They had performed miracles. They had gone out. They had, done, they had teached people the gospel. They had seen God work through them. But then looking to Jesus, whew, they remembered their weakness in seeing the standard that he sets. They saw how poor in spirit they really were the parts of themselves that were still needing to be emptied, the room they needed to make for improvement in themselves. Increase our faith. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the perfect example of what it means to be poor in spirit, of meekness, of humility. Can we truly live by the standard set in the Sermon on the Mount? I'd say in one sense, no. In this life, we probably won't reach perfection. But as we daily empty ourselves, which means to die to ourselves, and we take up our cross and we follow Jesus, our eyes ever fixed on him, we'll begin to see progress. This is not just essential, but it is literally impossible to ever even hope to please God without first understanding this principle, that we must cling to Christ. He is our only hope. And with this as our foundation, we become, it becomes easier to understand that it is not simply what we do, but from where those actions come from that matters. It's not just what we do. This is why Jesus makes this comparison. We'll see again and again throughout the text of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I mean, the Pharisees, they lived really righteous lives. And he says, no, you need to be more righteous than them. You need to be perfect. How is that possible? By realizing I can't do it. 
I need Christ. I will seek to live in my life with purity. This is what we need to tell ourselves. With peace, with brotherly love and truth in my thoughts and my actions because of the perspective I have through my relationship with Jesus. Because I walk with Christ, I see things differently. I see less of myself and more of him. I rely on his strength, not my own. This is the foundation for the Sermon on the Mount. We have to get this. We have to be poor in spirit. And as we'll see all through the Beatitudes, we have to be something before we can do anything. We have to be something. And nowhere or no, none is more important than this spiritual bankruptcy. I can't do it without you. I want to give you guys some homework. I know. It's like, what? Enough homework in my life. I thought this was church. But I want to challenge you to be doers and not just hearers. We're called to be doers and not just hearers. And so I want to give you this homework to read through the sermon. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. And every time you get to a section that you struggle with and you think, whoa, how can I hope to achieve that? How can I hope to be that? Or, oof, what does that mean? And you're challenged by it. Stay tuned. We're going to be getting through all of it as we, get through, as we go through this series. But I want to encourage you not to be discouraged. Make notes about the things that you find challenging, the things you struggle with. And take a moment and say a simple prayer. Pray something along the lines of, Lord, you know, <laughs> thank you that I belong to you. Thank you that I belong to you. And even though my heart has still sinful nature in it, I know that the seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ have been planted within my heart. And as that grows, as the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ grows within me, there becomes less and less room for everything else. As the truth of the gospel grows within us, there becomes less and less room for everything else. And we can just come to the Lord and say, Lord, may I be emptied of me that I may be filled with you. May I be emptied of me that I may be filled with you. So take time. Go through the sermon. Spend some time in prayer about the things that you're challenged on. And remember, we have to be emptied in order to be filled. Amen? I invite the band to come back up as we close in prayer. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this great text, this Sermon on the Mount, filled with all its challenges and insights and descriptions of what we're called to be, how we're called to look as Christians today, as disciples of Christ, and that we should look different than the world around us. I pray, Father, that your truth sinks into our heart, and as we prepare for this series, that you fill us with an excitement about what you will teach us, and that coming through it, Lord, we will grow in a knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen.